Praise God. Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans. We are uh, doing a message on a little series we've been doing lately called Setting the Captives Free. Uh, and this one is called Setting the Captives Free from Condemnation. Uh, condemnation, well, we need to look at this biblically because, yeah, the Bible does say that Jesus, God sent his son in the world, Jesus said, uh, to save the world, right? Uh, he said he didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world may be saved through him, amen? amen. Yet the scriptures are very clear, Jesus is very clear, many will reject him and be condemned, but uh, we need to understand what does the Bible say about this and how can we be set free from condemnation because of our crimes, our sins against God? And what's the message that the scriptures have for us? Can we be set free from condemnation? Can we be set free from guilt? What does that look like? What if you're a Christian and you still suffer sometimes with a lack of assurance or sense of condemnation, you know, uh, and don't have the peace of the Lord that you ought to have? I want to address those questions and more in this message with, with this, you know, as part of the Set of the Captives Free series. Uh, the scriptures give us very specific instructions as how to be saved. And many, most of the world doesn't know how to be saved. Most of the world doesn't, they know they're lost, but they don't know how lost they are. They don't know their past. They don't know that they've been created, many of them, right? They think they're just kind of, you know, oozed out of a rock, their ancestry though, in some way, which is not very scientific really, that everything came from nothing. It's not scientific at all. Uh, they don't know where they're going. They don't know what to do in between. They just follow their feelings off and get in all kinds of trouble and hurt each other and everything else. The world's a mess. But praise God, we have a good God, amen? And just as a loving father will give instructions to his children, amen? So the Father in heaven who created us, who gave us life, gives us not the manufacturer's handbook, but the God manufacturer's handbook, amen? He gives us directions on how to be saved. And praise God, he does that. And... Uh, I want to talk about, you know, the Romans Road a little bit. The Romans Road. In fact, probably one of our most popular tracks, if not our most popular track. The new track we have out, which is a little booklet, 20 pages, which, by the way, has gone to every house in Simi Valley now, by the grace of God. Did any of you get it at your homes? All, look at see? You know? Praise God. That's, that's cool. That's probably our most popular track right now because it's a 20-page booklet that is hard not to read when you get it, you know? So if you got that track and you're visiting us today or you're watching by live stream or what have you, praise God. We're glad you were able uh, to read it. But another popular track that we have is called Are You on the Road to Heaven? And this is a lot shorter. And this is when a, people, a lot of people will read it. And it's short and sweet. Uh, and I wrote this a, a number of years ago. But it's, uh, it's, it talks about the Romans Road a little bit. And if you're a Christian, you've heard of the Romans Road, Right? The Romans Road is a popular saying among Christians for uh, the road in the book of Romans to salvation, you know, uh, and, you know, what is that road contain? It's interesting because you have different versions of the Romans Road, and sometimes it's scaled down to leaving a couple steps out that are quite vital and important. Uh, so I want to, you know, I've kind of revisited the Romans Road in that track, what I'm saying here will be a lot more extensive than what written, is written in that track because I want to look at the Romans road in a deeper way. All right, the Romans road is basically the road to salvation, the road to heaven, to eternal life. I mean, is, I, I ask a question sometimes. Is there any more important question that you will answer in this lifetime as to where you will spend eternity? I mean, what's more important? I mean, it's so important that, you know, I picked the right wife, for instance. That's important, right? 
it's important that I answer that question. It's important that if you're going to be married or what have you, or a career path, that's really important, right? Who your friends are, who your neighbors are, that could be devastating or it could be a blessing. Those are all important questions in life, you know? All these things are important, but there's nothing more important than where you'll spend eternity. Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits or loses his soul, Right? So you can be, oh, I made the most important man. My name is Bill Gates or you know, Zuckerberg or whatever. And you think you've made the most important decisions because you've got so much money. But man, where are you going to spend eternity? That's the real question. And the Romans road is a road to eternity. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. No one, zero, zilch, nada, comes to the Father but through me. Amen. He said, I am the door. He said, if someone tries to go another way, the same as a thief and a robber. Jesus said, enter the narrow gate. For broad and spacious is the way that leads to destruction. Many go that way, right? But narrow is the gate and straight is the way that leads to life. And few are those who find it. I want to make sure I'm on the narrow road, amen? And before I was a Christian, I was very anti-Christ. And then I came to the realization because I got kind of, I just got waylaid because of my rebellion against God, not realizing what I was actually doing totally, and then God revealed himself to me. And uh, when I was a youngster, that he's very real, Satan's very real, and I need to make a choice. And man, I can honestly say, I regret a lot of my days, man, before I was a Christian. But I haven't regret, regretted, even the tougher days, I haven't regretted one day following Jesus. Even the harder days, because I know he works all things together for the good, for those who love him, amen, or the call according to his purpose, amen. So I'm so happy to be on that road. But we need to make sure we're on that road because there's a lot of people saying, thinking they're on the road to salvation who aren't on it. The cults, world religions, those who reject Christ. Some are not on the right road because they believe Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, but they aren't following the Romans road, the scriptural road. So let's look at that. and It's important that we get it. Uh, the first thing, the first step, and you can go with me through Romans. We'll go through some other scriptures too, but mainly through Romans as we look at uh, seven of these steps along this road that leads to salvation, the narrow path. Uh, first off, the first step you must make to be saved is to recognize that you're a sinner. Okay? If you don't recognize you're a sinner, you'll never come to Christ. Because if you don't think you need to be saved because you think you're righteous and you're a self-righteous person, you think you're really good and you're righteous on your own, you don't need God, that's sad because then you'll never make the decision to come to the Savior because you don't think you need to be saved. That's why Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to recognize that we're, we're spiritually bankrupt. We're poor. We can't get to heaven on our own good works. The Bible says all of our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. So it's important that we recognize that we're sinners. Romans 3.23, and that's the first verse for the Romans road we'll look at, is all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You could even back up to Romans 3.10. It says, as is written, there's none righteous, no, not what? There's not one. So there's all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, no, not one. So we've all blown it. And we didn't know it deep down. That's why every human being has a sense of guilt. 
Well, what about a psychopath or a sociopath and serial killers? Well, I've looked at, I studied serial killers in the past, and I found out that they, when they were younger, like say Jeffrey Dahmer, who's been the most you know, famous or infamous serial killer in the last couple years because there's been a movie about him and so forth, even he felt guilt. He killed a dog before he started killing humans purposely. And then he started going to church, he said, because he felt an incredible amount of guilt. But then what happens is the Bible says you can sear your consciences as with a hot iron. You know how you can make something, you know, unfeeling by taking something really hot? You can actually lose the feeling in your fingers if you were just burned enough. Well, you can do that with your soul, with your conscience, through drugs, through uh, just evil. You can sear it to where you don't listen to your conscience anymore. Just like that idiot light, very, very important in your car that turns on and says, hey, you know what? <laughs> your, your, your engine is out of oil. You better do something about it. Starts blinking or whatever. But how many people have ignored that and then all of a sudden their engine's smoking and it seizes? Well, many people ignore their conscience. Not to do evil. Don't hurt people. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what happens is they sear their consciences. But we all have a conscience. And all have sinned. We all have to admit, if we're honest, sometimes we, when we witness people, we give people the good person testament. Amen? Have you ever taken something that doesn't belong to you? Oh, yeah? Even something little. What does that make you? A thief. Have you ever told a lie? Even a little one? Well, most people say, yeah. What does that make you? A liar. Have you ever taken God's name in vain? What does that make you? A blasphemer. Have you ever had lust in your heart? You know? What does that make you? A fornicator, an adulterer. Have you ever put someone before God? What does that make you? An idolater. All these are in the list of viceless of those who aren't going to heaven. So we've all sinned and come short of God's glory. Amen? And it's important to get that. Uh, in fact, go to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, it says, just as... Through one man, sin entered into what? The world. Through one man, sin entered into the world. And death through sin. And thus death spread to all men. Because all, all have sinned, right? So sin's come to the world, and it came through one man, right? And it's been devastating, for sure. You know, there's a new movie out called Oppenheimer, right? It's huge. I think it's the biggest, most successful movie ever, you know? Uh, and it's about the man who basically you know, led, you know, oversaw the invention of you know, the atom bomb and the horrific effects the atom bomb had and how it changed history. And it had an incredible effect because at the end of 1945, after Ger Germany had started a, you know, World War II and had been going on for years, and the Japanese were their ally, and... United States was brought into that war, God bless you, when, uh, you know, as far as with Japan, uh, and we got brought in that war when they bombed Pearl Harbor. And they were, they're sending, yeah, I mean, how, how often has our country been attacked by warplanes? Not very often, right? You know? And uh, we ended that war at the end of World War II, basically led to the end of that war when we dropped two atom bombs, one on Hiroshima which instantly vaporized and wiped out, killed, destroyed, melted in some cases, 80,000 people. Uh, and the aftermath of that with leukemia and cancers because the radiation, about 140,000 people end up dying from that bomb. And then uh, the Japanese war machine, they were serving their emperor as though he was God, still continued 
And until we dropped another atom bomb on Nagasaki, another 80,000 people were killed. Altogether, nearly a quarter million people in just a span of days. At that point, uh, the emperor of Japan said that there is a new, he, he made a public statement that they were surrendering because there is a new and cruel bomb that's been made that was dropped on us. A lot of people were killed, devastated, destroyed people. So if you ask what's the most destructive bomb that was ever dropped, people would say the atom bomb. And they would cite Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And they'd be right, but they'd also be wrong because there's another atom bomb which is far more devastating than those atom bombs. Far more. In fact, it's affected each of us and it's helped kill each of us. And I'm talking about Adam, the first Adam, as in Adam and Eve. Because we read again in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to who? All men, because all sinned. You guys, Way more people, billions of people, are dead as a result of the first atom bomb. Amen? And we are sinners by nature because we inherit Adam's sin. Yet, some would say, well, that's unfair. Well, you're not being held accountable for Adam's sin, but you're a human being. He represents us. He was the head of our race. And when Adam fell into sin, he, he was our champion. It's almost like if you were going to play a basketball game and you're like, you know, the, the, where the world was at, depending on whether the United States won or lost, was based on you beating somebody. you beating the best player from another nation. Say you had to fight, you know, the Greek, or play against the Greek freak, a one-on-one, -on -one, you know. Or you had to play against uh, Luka Doncic or something, one of the best guys from the other nations. But... But you said, wait a minute, I'm going to lose. I'm going to have our best player play. And you could take a prime Jordan or a prime LeBron, right? Pick one of the two, right? And you're like, he represents our whole country. And say it was the Olympics, one-on-one. -on -one, and he lost. Well, guess what? You would have lost too. Whoever got stuck in Adam's place would have lost because humans have proven <laughs> that, you know, human beings have proven uh, that, we can't handle the power that God's given us. We want to be our own gods. So Adam represented us. But we're not condemned because of what Adam did. Because if a baby dies, yes, they have a sinful nature, right? You watch little babies in the nursery. They're all hammering each other and taking things from each other and lying to each other and scratching each other. That's us when we're little, right? But they're not, they're not held accountable for breaking the law until they become aware of the law. Because in Romans 5, in Romans 3, in Romans chapter 7, the Bible says over and over again that we're not held accountable for the law, to the law until we become aware of the law. And we become aware of God's moral law through our conscience, right? Also through his written word. It's like, hey, like say, you know, 15 years ago, if a German guy is in, uh, you know, driving on the Autobahn at 150 miles an hour in a Porsche, he's okay. There's no law. But he comes over here and does, pulls that. Guess what? He's going to jail at 150 miles an hour, right? Because there's a law. Well, babies aren't aware of the law until they reach a certain age. Then they become accountable before God. And the scriptures tell us that we are in trouble with God 
uh, and, and because of our sin, and that God holds us accountable because of our own sin. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. The soul that sins, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. Meaning, guess what? You're not going to be held responsible for your father's sin or your great, 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 great grandpa Adam's sin. Uh, the son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. The soul that sins will die. Neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. Okay? So it's your own sin. And because of your own sin, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. The wages of sin is death. And all have sinned and the soul that sins will die. We die because we're sinners. And we deserve it. And we have an appointment with God. It's dire. It's, it's tragic. It's sad. Because Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed man once to die, but after that, that's what? It's appointed man once to die, but after this, the judgment. It says he appeared the first time in reference to our sin, to, to die for our sins. But a second time in reference to sal our salvation. Meaning for those who know Christ, we're looking forward to uh, our final salvation, our glorification when he returns. Now, Let's look at the second step. The, the first step is recognizing that you're a sinner. Now, if you say, hey, I'm not a sinner, man. You guys are all sinners. Everybody's a sinner but me. I'm the one righteous guy on earth. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. By the way, I, wanna, I don't want to be by you on Judgment Day, you know. Woo, man. You know? But 1 John 1, 8 and, uh, says, and 1, 10 basically says the same thing. That he that says he's without sin is what? A liar, and the truth is not in him. You're not being honest. You know, some of our, some Catholics, Roman Catholics say, well, Mary was without sin. Where does it say that? All have sinned, right? She came short of the glory of God, you know? Uh, in fact, Mary had to sacrifice with Joseph turtle doves before Christ died on the cross. And she calls, G the Lord, she calls God her Savior. She needed a Savior too, guys. That's not a biblical teaching. All, everybody has sinned. Everybody's come short of God's glory, amen? So we all have to admit that. And then de denying that, you're sinning by just denying it. So that's step number one. You have to acknowledge that you're a sinner. Number two, you must realize, you need to realize that the wages of sin is death. Sin separates you from God. And it's important to know that because it's not just physical death, it's also spiritual death. Because sin separates you from God. God says in Isaiah, your sin has separated you from me. You know? And... The Bible says it's not just, it's not annihilation. The Bible says, just says, it says the body without the spirit is dead. So when our spirit leaves our body, our physical body dies, right? But right now our spirit is dead too. Because we were once, Adam and Eve walked with God in the, in the cool of the garden, amen? Then they rebelled against God and there was a separation because of their sin. And that separation brought spiritual death. That's why Jesus said you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Amen? John 3, 3. John 3, 5. John 3, 7. He said over and over and over again, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. 1 John 5, 1 says, he that believes in Jesus is born of God. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that we've been born again by the incorruptible word. There's like over and over again in the Bible. People says, oh, are you one of those born again Christians? It's the only kind of Christian there really is, guys. You got to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Amen? So, but you have to understand first that sin separates us from God and that the wages of sin is death. And when I share the gospel with people on the streets or I'm sharing with somebody uh, that, I, that I meet and when I talk about the Romans road a bit and I take in Romans 3.23 all of sin and then I mention Romans you know, 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. 
I just simply say, what are wages? You know, what are your wages? And they'll say, yeah, that's what I earn, you know, when I'm working or what I get get paid every week or whenever your pay period is. Yeah, well, guess what? The wages of our sin is death, man. That's why we die. And you're going to face death, man. The Bible says your life's like a vapor. You can die any moment, right? I mean, any time we could die. And most people, when they die, they didn't know it was coming. Or they got just a month or two or six months notice. But many people die unexpectedly. So the wage of sin is, is, is uh, death. And it's important that we get this because, you know, <laughs> that's serious. It's one thing to die physically. That's serious. That's why we cry at funerals and they're so sad because the person has died. But the separation from God, which the Bible also calls the second death ultimately in the lake of fire, that's where it leads. It's called the second death, the lake of fire. So the first death is when you die physically because of your sin. The second death is when you're sentenced because you've rejected the salvation because you've been in rebellion to God. Then you reject the salvation that God offers through faith, eternal life. Then you go and you receive the second death, which the Bible describes as lake of fire where there's no, there's, you know, no rest day and night, it says forever and ever, eternal torment. Horrific. Sad. But praise God, the, we, the first step, recognize your sin, your sinner. Recognize that your sin deserves judgment, right? And number three, praise God. Aren't you grateful the Roman road doesn't stop after point one and two, those first two steps? We'd all be stepping off into hell forever, amen? Praise God for step three, which is in the same verse, Romans 6.23, if you're following me in Romans, is for the wages of sin is death. Yeah, that's true. But he goes on to say, but the free gift of God, okay, is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Amen. Eternal life, free gift. Now I'm guaranteeing right now, almost guaranteeing, if I had a $500 million lottery ticket, I think the biggest lottery thing, I don't know if it happened already or not, because I've never bought a lottery ticket, but if it was up right now, they say it's like the biggest ever somewhere, and it's $500 million, I actually had the winning ticket, right? And I said, you know what? I feel the Lord takes care of me enough. I have enough food to eat. I'm content with food and covering. The Lord's blessed me. I'm leaving up this for whoever wants it. But you can't get it until I walk off the stage after the service is over. How many of you would not look like Christians when you'd run up here trying to beat the next guy? Or how many of you would just like look and say, those backsliders, you know, they're so greedy. No, I'm giving it away. It's a free gift, so they can come up. It's not wrong necessarily. It's wrong if you trample the next person. But everybody like, ha! Most people would be like that. Some of you would be like, no, I'm, Jesus is going to take care of me. But part of you would be like, you and your wife, you might argue on the way back. Why didn't you go grab that? You know? That's $500 million, right? Well, guess what? A lot, I've done studies where I've seen and I've actually quoted some of the effects of a lot of people that win the lottery just destroys their lives, man. Too much money. The guy that won the most money ever at a certain period, I think his name was, kind of drawn a cold on his name, but I quote him where he gave money to one of his, his granddaughters and she used it on drugs and OD'd and died. And he's like, I wish I would have ripped up that ticket, you know. But guess what you won't regret and which blows away $500 million. Eternal life, amen. And it's a free gift. And there's nothing, again, more important than having eternal life. And praise God, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen? Amen. So that's a beautiful, uh, beautiful gift, a beautiful present we've been given in the Lord, you know. And it's interesting, too, because 
You know, we're talking about the atom bomb. This is kind of interesting. My dad used to always say, not always, but a few times, it stuck in my head because it was such an interesting statement because I was aware as a youngster to a degree, as much as a youngster might be able to, uh, of the devastation the atom bomb brought. But you know what my dad used to say? My dad used to say over and over again, you know, Joe, the atom bomb saved my life. And I'd be like, first time he said that, I was like, how did it save your life? Then later on he'd say it, and then, you used to hear that, Tom? Yeah, my brother Tom would say the same thing to us. You know, yeah, he'd, he'd, uh, it saved my life. And, and then he explained it as I got a little older, he goes, because he was in the Philippines when it dropped. And Japan had overtaken the Philippines. They had ruled, the, they took over the Philippines, they occupied it for like two years during World War II. But we sent a lot of our servicemen there and resisted their occupation. And while we didn't get all of them off the island, they retreated and they lost power of the island. And many of them were holed up in, you know, uh, on these little islands everywhere, you know, little tiny islands, still fighting the war until it ended. Most of them, some kept fighting actually. But uh, he was a paratrooper there. And once the United States had taken control of the island, they were sending him to, guess where, as a paratrooper, to drop off in Japan. So he had been a paratrooper dropping in Japan. And as, as evil as many of the Nazis treated their people that they caught, they say the Japanese were even worse. And yeah, and it could have been my dad. So he'd say, Joe, the atom bomb saved my life. Because after the atom bomb dropped, guess what? They knew they didn't have to go be dropped in Japan and most likely die. So he'd say, you wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for the atom bomb. But guess what? The atom bomb saved my life too, in a different way, because Jesus is called the second Adam. Amen? He's called that. He's called the last Adam. In fact, we read in Romans 5.14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam, the first Adam, because his death led to you know, the condemnation of humanity, death spread out throughout the world, he's a type, a picture of the last Adam, the second Adam, who gave his life for our sins, amen? Who paid for our sins on the cross so we could be forgiven, amen? And he reversed the curse. And we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, so it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam a life-giving spirit. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, we receive Christ and we receive forgiveness of our sins. Amen? If you're putting your trust in him, you don't have to be condemned. You can turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how does that work? Go to Romans chapter 5, verse 6. To me, this is some of the most beautiful verses in, this is some of the most beautiful words written, period. Some of the most beautiful words written in Holy Scripture. Romans 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Amen? Praise God. He didn't just die for a few people. He died for the ungodly. Very rarely, he goes on to say, Paul writes, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. Very rarely somebody will die for a righteous person, you know, for, you know, for a righteous person, but someone might possibly die for a righteous dude. Like, wow, you know, that guy's such a good guy, such a good father, you know, such a good husband, doing so much to help people. I'm going to die for him. 
That might happen once in a while. It's very rare. But then look what he goes on to say. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us, man. When we were rebels against God, man. When we were all doing our own thing, giving God the finger, man. Christ died for us. Now think about that, man. Would you die for someone? Would you die for someone who hated your guts? Who spit on you? Who wanted nothing to do with you? Who mocked your family? That's what we were doing before Christ. To one degree or another, we were not following the Lord. We're, we're still sinners. In fact, Paul, who writes this, was the chief of sinners. He was the worst one. He was having Christians killed. He was blaspheming Jesus. He says, I was formerly a blasphemer. He goes, I was the chief of sinners. Says that all in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He tried to get Christians, to, he dragged them out of the houses trying to get them to blaspheme God. He said, I was the chief of sinners. But you know, he says, I was the chief of sinners. He goes on to say, I love it. And this is some of the most encouraging verses, again, along with these in the Bible. He said, God saved me, the chief of sinners, to show others who would come to him later that they too would be accepted. Amen. You don't have to feel condemned, man. If you say, well, I've, I've gone too far. I've sinned too much. God won't save me, you know. Guess what? Paul says he saved me, the worst of all the sinners, so you can know that he died for you too. And then he goes on to say, pray for kings and those who are in authority. Kings. Who was the main king that Paul would be thinking of? Nero. Nero, Nero would behead Paul. He'd have him killed. According to Tertullian, church father, Wow. Yeah, Paul says, pray for him. For why? Why pray for Nero and others? And pray for everyone, he says, basically. He says in verse 4, because God wills that all would be saved, including you, and come to knowledge of the truth. And that's why verse 6 says that Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for who? For all. That's why Jesus died for you. Even Judas, man, when he's getting ready to betray Jesus. Jesus says, this cup is for you. He was at the table. And he offered him the sop to Judas. But Judas rejected the salvation that was being offered to him. And he, gives, he betrays Jesus later with a kiss. And Jesus says, friend, you betray me with a kiss? And that's a from a typology that Jesus was working off of, which was prophetic of Jesus being betrayed when Ahithophel had betrayed King David, who was his trusted counselor, counselor called his trusted friend. But Judas, man, as wicked as he was, possessed by the devil, says the devil entered into him. Jesus had still said to him, I'm pouring out my blood for you. That's amazing. And praise God, he gave himself as a ransom for all. So the good news, guys, is... is you can feel really bad about your sin, and you ought to feel bad about your sin. We all should feel horrible about our sin, amen? It's our sin that put him on the cross. But it was going to the cross that he died to save sinners, amen? amen. He didn't come to save saints. He came to save sinners. He came to save you, amen? That's good news, guys. So the enemy comes in to condemn you because he's called the accuser of the brethren. He will seek to condemn you if you're a Christian, and point out ways you've fallen short in your walk before. You know how to tell the difference. I sometimes share this when I counsel brothers and sisters in Christ. You know how to tell the difference between condemnation and conviction? There's a big difference. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. 
the devil seeks to condemn us for sin. See, right now, the day of grace is here. And even for those who had fallen away from the Lord, the Lord says and warns them in Hebrews 3, not to harden your heart where you don't hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Even the lukewarm church at Church of Laodicea in chapter 3 of the book of Revelation, when they're lukewarm and in danger of being spit out, Jesus says, he said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, let him open the door. He convicts us of sin. The difference is it's convicting. He shows us our sin, but shows us an answer. Amen? Shows us there's a remedy. Shows us that he provided salvation for us. Shows us that he died for us. Shows us that he longs to forgive us. Amen? Amen. That's a beautiful reality. But condemnation says the do- something way different. It says there's no hope for you. Jesus' death isn't for you. It's over for you. You've gone too far. You can't be saved. That's condemnation. So when you have a little voice condemning you, saying, ah, too late, you can never be saved, it's over for you. That's not the Holy Spirit, man. That's what the enemy says to you. What does the Holy Spirit do? He knocks. Even in Revelation, at the end of every letter to the seven churches, and five of them have gone AWOL in some way. Every time he says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He wants us to respond. The Holy Spirit convicts us. Amen. Now, if we continue to reject the voice of the Holy Spirit, then we'll end up condemned in the end because we rejected the provision for our salvation that God made through the cross. Amen? But don't do that. While you have breath, make sure you receive the forgiveness of sins. Amen? Can you follow me today? Does everything I say make sense? It's such important stuff, guys. So it's, it's, it's so beautiful. I mean, Jesus himself, the Bible says God is love. Amen? And Jesus himself says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus went on to say, he didn't send his son to the world to condemn the world, the world through may be saved. Amen. But then he goes on to say, this is a condemnation that men refuse to come to light, lest their deeds be exposed. And they love darkness, he says, more than light. So if you're going to love darkness more than light and never turn to Jesus, at the end of your life, you'll be condemned. But if you put your faith in Jesus, John 6, 24, he that believes has passed from death to life and shall not come into condemnation. Amen? That's so beautiful. So step number three is recognizing the provision that God has made through Jesus. Step number four, and I love this, man. It's uh, repentance, you know? Okay? I recognize that Jesus died for me, but a lot of people believe that Jesus died for them, but are they actually subjectively trusting him for their salvation? The Bible says in James chapter 2, the demons believe and tremble. Just believing in your mind doesn't save you, amen? You actually have to put your trust in Jesus. You're on the broad road, Jesus said, that leads to destruction before you're saved, amen? You need to do a 180. Metanoia is a Greek word for repentance that's used most often in the New, in the New Testament. You need to do, you're going down this broad road away from Jesus to destruction. Metanoia is to do a 180, turn from the road to destruction, and repent means to turn to Jesus, Amen? Some say, well, we, we have to put our faith in Jesus, but we don't have to repent. It's impossible to put your faith in Jesus if you're not repenting. Why? Because if I'm going this direction, away from Jesus, and he's calling me to put my trust in him, right? How can I put my trust in him unless I what? Turn. Turn. Amen? Amen? It's that simple. So repentance isn't good works you do to earn your salvation. A lot of people think, well, repentance is you do a whole bunch of good things and God will accept you. That's not repentance. Okay? Repentance is a change of heart and a change of mind that leads to a change of direction and a change of behavior. John the Baptist in John chapter 3, verse 8, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, he says to the religious leaders who weren't repenting and turning to follow Jesus, he says to them, 
bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. So the good things we do after we repent are the fruit of repentance. Amen? Repentance itself is a simple turning from that broad road that leads to destruction. Meta- I, such a, I love that. It's one of my favorite Greek words, metanoia. You know what? In fact, when I do biblical counseling, that's a lot of what we talk about. A lot of it's metanoia. You've got to turn from this. You know? You know, not that people always need to turn from something that I'm counseling, but some, that comes up a lot, like, you know, through the years. I can think of times you, you're drinking, man, you're getting drunk, man, you got a metanoia. Or you're mistreating your wife or your husband. You have to metanoia. You have to have a change of heart, a change of mind about how you're going to treat that person. So look at Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It's very beautiful. Romans chapter 2. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the what? The kindness of God leads to what? Leads you to repentance. His kindness leads us to repentance. I love that verse. That's a great verse. The fear of the Lord is beginning wisdom. Amen. That's good. Amen. But the kindness of the Lord also what leads us to repentance. When I start to realize, man, look how, what, what a dirtbag I've been in my life. And you don't deserve salvation. Then I find out, wow, Jesus died for me. Look what he did for me. While we were you at sinners? He died for me? How could he? I didn't know such love existed. I've shared the gospel with different people who start to cry when I share the gospel with them personally. They, and they say, it's just so beautiful. I'm like, yeah, it's amazingly beautiful. It's his kindness. Why, you paid my sins? How could I not repent and turn to the one who loves my soul, who gave himself for me, who cares so much about me that he left heaven and became a man as a God-man and was nailed to the cross and marred more beyond that of any man where his face became unrecognizable because of that great love, whipped, spit upon, not deserving. It could have just said, you guys are just, I'm going to let you guys get what you want, separate from me forever. But no, God seeks us out. In theology, we call this pre-salvation grace or prevenient grace or pre-regenerating grace. It's the grace of God that comes before we get saved. And whether you recognize it or not, it happened in your life. Long before you ever start, started seeking God, he was seeking you. Because Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. Amen. Amen. And the Holy Spirit goes throughout the entire earth and he convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. In John 1.9 it says that Jesus is the light of the world in John 8.12, right? But in John 1.9 it says he is the light that gives, uh, that he gives light to everyone that comes into the world. Amen? He enlightens the heart of everyone that comes into the world. That's amazing. And then John 6.44 says, Jesus says, nobody can come to me unless the Father what? Unless the Father draws him. Amen? So he, but let's, in fact, let's go to John really quick. John chapter 6, where it says that. So people misunderstand this verse. Some don't like the verse. They won't even, oh, 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 no, I, I came to God on my own. No, they might not say that, but it's like they act like that. Others are like, well, he just drew me. I'm the only one he drew and just a few other elect or just a small group of people. But let's look at the text, John 6, 44. We don't want to ignore the text. We want to say, praise God. In John chapter 6, uh, verse 44, we read this. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless what? 
the Father who sent me, what? Draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we can't come to him unless the Father draws us. Why? Because we're doing our own thing. We're in rebellion, running against him, and, and we're perfectly happy to just follow the, the flesh and the things of the flesh. But look at verse 65. Who does he draw? And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one, I'm sorry, <laughs> verse uh, 45. Verse 45. The very next verse, right after 44 that we read, it is written in the prophets, and they shall, what? How many will be taught by God? They shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, what? Comes to me. So they'll all be taught by God, but it's those who learn from the Father, right? Who pay attention to what he's saying. What does he say will happen to them? They're the ones that will come to me. So it's not that he just wants, I just want a few people to come to me, you know? I, want I just want everybody else to be damned even though I could draw them. No, he draws everybody. How do I know he draws everybody? Go to John 12. John chapter 12. And go ahead and look at verse 32. Jesus says, Now judgment is upon this world. Verse 31. Now the rule of this world will be cast out. Then verse 32. And I, will, and, and I if I am lifted up from the earth, will what? We'll draw who? It's the same Greek word for draw in John 6, 44 as it is here in 32. I will draw who? All men, All men to myself. Amen? Because his Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. He lays the heart of everyone that comes in the world, which makes sense because he doesn't will that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. He wills, wills, right? he wills that all would be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. He has no pleasure in the death of anyone, it says. No pleasure in the death of That's all over the New Testament and the Old he didn't just choose Abraham to get the Jews, right? He chose Abraham that through him, it says, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But we must respond. So he's drawing everyone to himself. But look at verse 35. We have a decision to make. So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. What does he say to do? Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become what? Sons of light. To me, it's crystal clear. He wants them to become sons of light. He's seeking to draw them even then. And then he'll draw the world through his death. Amen? You can't say, well, he didn't really want them to come. He wants them to come. In John chapter 6, verse, or John 5, around verse 44 and 45 and verse you know, 39, 40, and, and, and then after that, 34, 35, and I think verse 40, Jesus says to the Pharisees, religious leaders who will have him killed, I'm saying these things to you that you might be saved. But they said, but you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. Jesus says he only spoke the words that were given to him by the Father. That's the Father's heart. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's good news, amen? He loves us. He wants us. But guess what? We must repent. We must turn from the broad road to Jesus so we can put our faith in him. Amen? So we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Must repent. Number five. Number five. Go to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. We must confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord. Well, what about the thief on the cross? I mean, he didn't have any time to do anything, you know. 
He, he just, well, guess what? If you have true faith in Jesus, you put your trust in him, and right after you put your faith in Jesus and your mouth doesn't open up, you get shot in the head, I'm sure you'll be in heaven, okay? Because God sees your faith. But true faith, when it has opportunity, will eventually make confession, amen? In fact, look at 10, 9, and 10. It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and what? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So step number five is you must put your trust in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Which is part of repentance. You don't repent unless you're turning to put your trust in him. Amen? You don't put your trust in him unless you're repenting, right? It's interesting. There's only three verses that have repentance and faith or believe in the same verse. And guess what? Each one of those verses always say, repent and believe. So, and it makes sense. Repentance comes before belief, right? Why? Because when you repent, you have to repent before you can trust. But in a way, belief happens before repentance. I don't want to get too deep here, but it's true. But wait a minute. You just said it's true that you repent before you believe. Yes, both are true. How are both true? Because here, when Jesus calls me, and, he, and I look back, but I'm not turned yet, I see his claims. I see, wow, I'm a sinner. Wow, I need to repent. Whoa, man, I'm in trouble. You know, oh, I believe he died for me, right? But it's one thing to believe he died for me objectively, but that's objective faith. I believe he died for me, but I'm not saved any more than the demon saved until I what? Repent. So I believe objectively, yes, he died for me. A lot of people believe that, but then when I, but I must what? Repent to put my faith in him and trust him for my salvation, amen? So there's objective faith where, yeah, I believe he died for me, but then there's subjective faith where I'm actually leaning into Jesus, trusting him for my salvation. Amen. So there's two types of belief. One is objectively, yes, he died for me, but are you going to turn? Yes, I'm going to repent and put my faith in him. Are you with me? You might believe I have $500 million lottery ticket here. Well, no, you wouldn't believe that. Okay. But let's say you did. You saw it with your own eyes. It was proven. The news is all about it. Right? But you're walking out the door when I offer it to everybody. Well, you can keep walking. You believe it. it. doesn't get you the ticket until you turn around and then you what? Exercise faith by grabbing it. Well, we need to put our trust in Jesus. And when we put our trust in Jesus, it's a real faith. It's not just a, right here in the head. It's in the heart, right? Because he says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus uh, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart, one believes unto salvation. And with a mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Wow. And even the thief on the cross, man. Lord, remember me when you bring, come into your kingdom. The guy that was blaspheming him, and he had been blasphemed. They'd both been blaspheming Jesus. Then he rebukes that guy and stands up for him. He goes, we're suffering justly for what we did. He suffered innocently. He even, he's, he's doing a lot more than most Christians do when they first get saved. Amen. So we must uh, put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and confess him as our Lord and our Savior. All right, number six. Number six. You must call upon the Lord. You must remember the two guys in the, the temple, you know, and remember the Pharisee or the, the religious leader. He's like, I'm, thank God I'm not like that sinner over there, man. I fast twice a week. I give to the poor. He's not even asking for forgiveness. He thinks he's got it. He's self-righteous. And Jesus said there was another guy there 
who was so ashamed, the publican, you know, he couldn't even look up. Yeah, he's, his head's down. He's ashamed of his sin. And he beats his chest saying, he said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, you remember what Jesus said. He asked the question, which one of these men left right with God? Justified. The humble man. And even the religious leaders admitted that. They go, yeah, the humble guy. He goes, yeah. Well, guess where, guess where they were supposed to see themselves? As the Pharisee. Amen. But there's a narrow road, man. You have to turn to the narrow road, but you won't turn until you're convicted. You realize you're a sinner. You must confess Jesus. But he cried out to the Lord. This guy cried. He called upon the Lord, right? Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And he was forgiven. Amen. What does it say? In, and look at Romans 10, 13. Step five was Romans 10, 9, and 10. We're still on the Romans road. Look at 10, 13. Everyone who what? Calls in the name of the Lord will be what? Will be saved. Amen. Call in the name of the Lord. And when you repent and you turn to Jesus, that's what you do, right? You just, I put my trust in you, Lord. Save me. Forgive me. Amen. And you'll receive forgiveness of sins. It's that, it's that simple. It's that, that beautiful, you know. You confess your sins to him and he forgives you. Now, there is a, this, this war that goes on before you get saved. And when you get saved, there's still a war. Before you're saved, the Bible says, talk, Jesus talked about how Satan, when the seed of salvation is sown by the Son of Man, which is Jesus, he th- sows the word through the body of Christ. We are his body. He did it himself before he ascended. He was sharing the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and that you must be born again. When the word sown, Jesus talked about how Satan will come and seek to steal the seed out of your heart, lest you believe and are saved. Amen. Then if you receive it and you believe and are saved, then he'll seek to squish it out with the thorns and the things of this world, right? But Satan is at war with you trying to get you not to come to Christ at first. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, it says, If our gospel is hidden, it's because the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of those that believe not, lest the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, whose image of God, should shine unto them. He doesn't want them to be saved. So he blinds you before you get saved. He's at war with you. And that's why Jesus said, and then when you start to see the truth, there's a war within. And Satan tries to get you not to make the right decision. Because you're not saved by your good works, right? You're saved by what Jesus did. But guess what? Before you come to Christ, there's a war. In fact, remember when Jesus said, enter the narrow gate? Well, you know what he said in Luke chapter 13? He said, unless you repent, you all likewise perish, right? But then what else did he say? Somebody says, is it true, Jesus? They say to him, is it true, Jesus, only a few will be saved? Because that's what he was teaching. Taught that before that occurrence on the Sermon on the Mount. And it was spreading that only a few would be saved. And he says to the man, strive to enter the narrow gate. For many will seek to enter and will not be able. Wow. Because then he goes to talk about the day of judgment, man. It'll be too late. Like Noah, he uses the picture like Noah's flood. The, the judgment's coming, the water is rising up, and people are beating on the door, and they couldn't get out. He used a very similar picture with regard to a banquet of it's too late to get in. This is the time. Now is the time of salvation. The Bible says today is an acceptable day. Amen? Amen? So it's a trip. As he says, strive to enter the narrow gate. And the Greek word there for strive is agonizomai. Come on. We've talked about that word before. Some of you have heard me talk about that word, and you might have heard it elsewhere. Agonizomai is where we get the English word what? Agony. The word agon, A-G-O-N, was the word that was translated fight. There's more than one word translated fight, but fight the good fight. 
When you see that in 1 Timothy 1, where he tells Timothy, fight the good fight, you know, that's two different Greek words, but uh, which have to do with military fights. But later in 1 Timothy 6.12, when he says, fight the good fight, lay hold on eternal life. Lay hold on eternal life. He uses agon. Okay, agon. Agon, twice. Uh, that, that is basically the root word there, agon. And it had to do with a place where you would have the stadium. It was a stadium, referred to the stadiums, where you would do athletic contests, you know. And it was a place where you'd have to have a lot of agony. Athletes would go through a lot of agony being the Greek Olympics of those days in Paul's time. They had the Grecian Olympics back then. Well, guess what? Jesus uses agonizomai, strive to enter the narrow gate. You have to, well, wait a minute. I thought salvation is by grace through faith. What am I having to strive for? Well, guess what? He's not talking about working for your salvation. What's he talking about? John mentioned when he was giving announcements how our flesh wants to do something, and Satan loves to try to use our flesh, but we have to decide against our flesh. Before you get saved, you want to do your own thing, right? But Jesus says, if anybody's going to be my follower, he needs to take up his cross, deny himself daily, and follow me, amen? Deny yourself. And he said, we're supposed to pray, not our will, but God's will be done. Thy will be done on heaven and on earth, amen? So before I become a Christian, there's a fight going on. And it's an agonizing moment. Am I going to deny my flesh, do a 180, and forsake this road that leads to destruction and all the things that the devil temporarily promises me and embrace Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. That's an agonizing moment because you have a conflict in your will where the world, the flesh, the devil bag your will, so seek to seduce your will to stay on that broad road that leads to destruction. But you must turn to that narrow road and you must call upon the name of the Lord. Amen? And Satan wants to blind you to the beauty of salvation. You know, I remember my brother Tom. And it's good to see you guys all the way from Idaho visiting us. And Amanda, good to see you guys. But uh, it's just amazing because I remember when he was getting right with God, he told me that he was laying on his couch, coming out of the world system. And he, he said he was like in a fight for his soul. I got to make a choice, you know, when he was living in a certain house. And he, and, he, and he said, I had to make a choice to get right with God. And it was such a battle. And it makes me think of that verse, strive to enter the narrow gate, agonizomai. You need, but guess what, man? Once you come to Christ, you're like, what was I waiting for? Remember my sister Peggy, you know, three of our sisters came to Christ after I think Tom did. I think Patty came and then Tom and then Peggy and then my sister Kathy. And my mom came, I think, before them. Uh, and then eventually my dad. But I remember she was like, Joe, I used to, we used to all party, right? And when we were kids, you know, young. And, and uh, she goes, I remember when you got saved because she was saved now. Now she's walking with Jesus for a little while. She goes, I remember I used to feel so bad for you because you'd have to wake up early on the Sunday morning and go to church. I feel so bad for you. And she goes, now I'm like, I can't believe that. I can't wait to go to church now on Sunday. Because it gives you a new heart, amen? You have new life in Christ. You look forward to fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're on the road to heaven, amen? And she was just tripping out on that. And I'm scratching my head. I'm like, really? She was thinking that? She's like, can barely get up because she's got a hangover. She's cross-headed from cocaine, you know? Sorry, Peggy, if you're listening, I love you. But just out of it, you know? And I'm like, I'm like, I'll fill the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord, I can't wait to be with my brothers and sisters, you know? Lord is good, man. And this is the cool thing, too, is when you come to Christ, you get all this peace. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 1. That's part of the road. It's not a step. It's just an outcome of what we get as a result of calling upon the name of the Lord. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved, right? Paul to the, the, the jailer when 
God broke him and Silas out of prison. And the jailer was like, how must I be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt be saved. Amen. Put your trust in Jesus. And I love it. There shouldn't be any confusion with repentance and faith. Why? Because some people will say, oh, right here it says believe, but it doesn't mention repentance. But you know what you can do? I can show you where it says repent, but it doesn't say believe. Repent or you shall perish over and over again. It's not either or, it's both. And that's why the New Testament can use either term. God wills that all would repent and come to, right? And be saved and that none would perish over and over again because they go together. But when you repent and you embrace Jesus Christ and call upon the Lord and you come to Jesus, you get peace because you're at peace with God. You're no longer going to be punished forever, separated from God in hell, amen? You're no longer appointed to God's wrath. It's beautiful. Look at Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified or made right with God by faith, we have, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Wow. We have this peace. In John chapter 14, verse 24, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give you peace as the world gives it to you. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. He says, I give you peace, not like the world gives you peace. Jesus gives us real peace. The world, Satan offers us a piece of this and a piece of that. And a piece of this and a piece of that. I'll make you happy. And you're just miserable. It's not true peace, man. We come to Jesus and we receive peace. Now, there are many Christians, even though they've received Christ as Lord and Savior, and they're trusting him, sometimes go through feeling a sense of condemnation. Every Christian will probably go through that to one degree or another through their walk when the enemy just is really on them. But if you're trusting Jesus right now, you're, a true, you're following Christ, but you have struggled at times and you feel like, oh, I think I might have gone too far back then. And, and Satan will seek to rob you of your peace. Simply confess your sins, right? If we say we're without sin, we're liars, the truth is in us, amen. But if we confess our sins, right? The Greek word for confessor is homo legeo. Homo means same. Legeo means say. If we, don't, if we deny that we're sinners, we're doomed. But if we say the same thing about our sin as God, yep, I'm a sinner, right? I, I repent, right? We'll be forgiven our sins, it says, and cleanse of all unrighteousness. It's interesting because after the atom bomb did drop in World War II in 1945, September 2nd, uh, uh, the USS Missouri on September 2nd, 1945, uh, received the surrender from the Imperial Japanese Army. But what's interesting is there, were, there was a Japanese man who didn't surrender because he thought they were still at war. And he was there in the Philippines and for almost 30 years, guys. Almost 30 years. Uh, see, the war actually, after the end of his training in December of 1944, he went to the Philippines. He was a special forces kind of guy. And uh, his name is uh, Onada. Okay? And... Uh, Hiro, or Haru Onada. Uh, and this guy was quite interesting because he would fight against farmers. He would burn rice fields. He would do all kinds of things, thinking he was still at war. Not knowing for 30 years the war was over. They dropped leaflets. Let him know the war's over. But guess what? He was trained to watch out for that kind of propaganda. The war's not over. 
he thought, I'm going to, you know, and eventually one by one, because some of his comrades thought the same thing, and one by one they were being killed. One of them actually left him and said, no, the war's over. He's like, the war's not over. He continued to fight, thinking he was at war with the U.S. still for almost 30 years, which is really interesting. And on March 9th, 1974, at the age of 52, he emerged from the jungle, uh, still armed with a, a sword and a, a rifle. Yeah, this guy is pretty gnarly. They should make a movie about this guy, right? Uh, and his, because guess what? He received a visit from his commanding officer. The war's over, right? Well, how many Christians? The Bible says in 1 John 3.20, if our hearts condemn us, he's greater than our hearts. Sometimes we can, our hearts can condemn us. Your conscience can be misinformed. Uh, your friends, like Job's friends, Job's brothers can condemn you. Satan's accused the brethren, right? You can get all kinds of condemnation from all kinds of areas. And still, the war's over. God's, God's not condemning you. He died for you. You put your trust in him. You're forgiven. Amen. You need to accept, even as he accepted the words from his commanding officer, you need to accept the words of Jesus who said in John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will not cast away. Amen. As long as you're coming to Jesus, he's not going to cast you away. Well, what if I'm blaspheming him and I want nothing to do with him and everything else? Well, you're condemning yourself then. You know, and ultimately you will be condemned because you continue to reject Jesus. Don't do that, though. Last step, number seven. Well, you know what? I want to give you a couple more verses on sixth step because I love the fact that we're not condemned, man. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. I'm looking at the clock. I'm good for a minute here. Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now what? No condemnation for those who are where? In Christ Jesus. If you're trusting Jesus, man, you are in Christ. Over 60 times the preposition in Christ is used in the New Testament for believers. Amen. You are in Jesus. And therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you what? Free from the law of sin and death. You no longer the law of sin and death which condemned you before you came to Jesus. Look at verse 31. It gets better. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can what? Who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will we not also with him freely give us? How will we not also freely give us what? All things. We're joint heirs with Christ. We're inheriting all things through Christ. Amen. Who's God's beloved son. That just blows me away. You are, would you rather be a son of Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, or God the Father? Rejoice, man. Rejoice, because you have this eternal inheritance. We're joint heirs, it says, with Christ. Verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, who also intercedes, he prays for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all things we, are, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Amen? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is what? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? That's beautiful. If you are trusting Jesus, you are in Jesus. 
If you're in Jesus, all those who are in Christ Jesus will not what? Receive condemnation. John chapter 8. It's so beautiful. Now the seventh step. The seventh step talks about how you yourself, though, must continue on the road to salvation. You don't do, you've done the 180, you're following Jesus now, you don't dare do 180 to go the other way. Nobody can snatch you out of his hands, amen? None of these other forces can separate you from the love of God, which is Christ Jesus. But you're warned that you yourself in Romans, part of the Romans road, look at Romans 11, must continue to trust Jesus. Look at verse 20. Paul talks about how natural branches were broken off the Jews who uh, believed, but then they ceased belief. Paul says they were broken off. But you were grafted in to the olive tree, the salvation tree. So look what he says in verse 20. Granted, but they were broken off because of what? Unbelief. And you stand by what? Your faith. You stand by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. You stand by faith. You're in the tree by faith. Do not be arrogant, but what? But fear or tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and severity or sternness of God. Sternness or severity to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you what? Continue in his kindness. Otherwise you also will be what? Cut off. Are you saying, not what I'm saying, it's what the text says. <laughs> you know, I, I, I receive everything God says. I look at Romans 8, I say, praise God. I look at Romans 11, I say, no, I'm not going to try to explain that away. I say, praise the Lord. In fact, I love Romans 11 because it keeps my focus in Jesus to continue on the road of salvation and stay in Christ. Amen? And if I'm in Christ, neither height nor depth, principality or power, any other crazy thing can't separate me from the love of God. Amen? Praise God. Jesus and the Father, Jesus says, are stronger than all. And no one, none of, no one can pluck us out of their hands. Amen? Yet in John chapter 15, verse 6, he warns us, Jesus, he also gave us John 10, to abide in the vine. For any branch that does not remain or abide in the vine will wither up, be cut off, thrown in the fire, and be burned. Amen? So let's preach John 10 and John 15. Let's preach Romans 8 and Romans 11. There's a biblical balance. And by the way, that's what the early church for the first uh, hundred, few hundred years of church history believed. They just preached it all. So praise God for the security that we have in Christ but let's also remember that we need to continue on the road to salvation. Amen? Hmm. Is it me or is it Romans 11 that says we have to continue in the faith and stay on this road or be cut off? Is that something I made up or did I just read it? Just read it from Scripture. Well, it could mean this. Don't try to find a strange meaning to fit with some weird theology. Accept what the Lord says. Amen? That's why Paul says, because today we live in a time where you have the prosperity gospel, Right? Name it, claim it, where they just pull certain verses out and they ignore others. You have others that just quote the promises but not the warnings. In the text I just read, Paul says, consider the goodness, that's Romans 8, and the severity of God, Romans 11. We have to consider both. That way we have a balanced walk on the road, on the Romans road to salvation. Amen. And praise God. Continue to follow Jesus. And guess what will happen? Stay on the Romans road to salvation. And guess what will happen? 2 Peter 1.11 says, You will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Jesus said in Matthew 25.23, You'll hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's joy or enter into the joy of your Lord. Amen? Amen. Praise God for the Romans road. Amen? Praise God for the Word of God. Amen. We love you guys. Again, if you're visiting us today, guess what? I hope you, you came where the truth is preached. Amen.
And uh, hopefully you've been strengthened and encouraged in the Word of God. He loves you. We love you. And uh, welcome to the family of God. Uh, but make sure you've embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, how do I get saved? That's what the whole message was about. Amen. <laughs> Re repent and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And put your trust in him. And you'll pass from death to life and have eternal life. Amen. If you already know Jesus, amen, rejoice that you're not condemned in him. Amen. But yet you're safe in him. Just remain in him by continuing to trust him until the end. Amen. Praise God. I love you guys. Can we all please stand?